Well, we continue our series that we're looking at, the marriage rules of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And we have a situation here uh, where Paul, as you'll notice in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 7, says he's now speaking to the rest. And that's in and of itself an interesting uh, declaration. We have him back in verse 8 to the unmarried and to the widows, and in verse 10 to the married. And now suddenly he comes to a group and he says, uh, but now to the rest. Here's I want to deal with them. And so usually the question then is, well, well, who is he talking to? Who can the rest be? But you'll notice in verse 12, he begins by describing what he means when he says, if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, that's the group that she that he's talking to here is here is a, a scenario in which we have uh, uh, two unbelievers and one of them now is a Christian. And so here is their question to Paul. What should we do in that circumstance? Uh, I'm a Christian and they're not a Christian. Uh, Do the same marriage rules apply here at this moment or not? Or should uh, we now separate? Should we do something different based upon what God has said to do? And the reason why that is, I think, important to observe is as he says there in verse 12, he says, I, not the Lord. And please do not read that to mean now I'm in opinion mode and I'm just kind of pontificating off the top of my head about some marriage ideas. What he's pointing out is that this is a scenario that Jesus did not address. And so the question would come up then, well, what should we do in that circumstance? I think it's important to ask the question, why would they have that question? Why not just simply go, okay, all the marriage rules that were given by God all apply, and so we understand we should stay married, no no problem. And, And a little bit of understanding about their culture and their mindset helps us understand why they would write the Apostle Paul about a situation where a Christian is married then to an unbeliever. First, to help in culture to recognize that in the Greek home it was expected that the wives would worship the same gods as their husbands. Now, I want you to imagine all the problems that would fall out with that. For example, then, if you have a Christian wife and you're married then to an unbelieving husband and his expectation is you're going to worship all his pagan gods. That was the expectation of marriage in the Greek culture. And of course, she's not going to do that as a Christian. And so now you have a conflict. Now you have a problem. And so what are we supposed to do if I'm in a marriage where that is the compulsion here? That's the expectation that that's supposed to happen. And you can imagine the reverse would also be a problem. Here is the Christian husband. And here you have your unbelieving wife. And you're saying, now you need to put away the foreign gods and now worship the God that I'm worshiping, the true and living God. And she goes, I'm not going to do that. Well, what are we supposed to do? Not only was this, would this be a problem with the Greek culture and the Greek background, but it was also a problem for the Jewish background. As we see like in the book of Ezra, remember the law of Moses tells us that the people of Israel were not supposed to marry unbelievers or Gentiles. And so now we're in this situation, if you were coming from the Jewish background, you become a Christian, you'd look at this and go, well, am I supposed to put away my unbelieving spouse just like we see in Ezra chapter 10? 
So you can get a sense then of why this would be an issue. And it's not just simply a question of should we remain married or not. But there are conflicts and there are problems that are coming about because one of the the people in this marriage is a worshiper of God and the other one is not. And so that's why then Paul has to address something that Jesus did not have to address at that moment. And I want you then to notice in verses 12 and 13 of 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that you'll notice what the Apostle Paul gives is still the same marriage law. Stay married. Even if you're married to an unbeliever, stay married. Verse 12, it says, if she's willing to live with him, he should not divorce her. If she, if uh, he's willing to live with her, verse 13, she should not divorce him. Same rules that we have seen from Genesis 2, Matthew 5, Matthew 19, 1 Corinthians 7. All the same marriage laws still apply. Stay married, do not divorce them. Just because you become a Christian does not mean now you divorce your unbeliever spouse. That's the rule that he's giving. But what the Apostle Paul now has to do is basically explain why. And with this conflict that would have existed in that time and being a Christian married to a non-Christian, what the rest of this text is going to do is be Paul's explanation as to why this is good, why this is acceptable, why this is necessary. You'll notice then in verse 14, he gives then his first explanation when he says, For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. So he just gives this first observation and says, Understand that you are to remain in the marriage. You do not divorce your unbelieving spouse because the unbelieving spouse is made holy. We should not read that to think, well, that means you're saved. Two verses later, he's going to say that's not the case. He's going to say you don't know if you'll be able to save your unbelieving spouse. So to call them holy does not mean they're saved. And recognize, when we look at the Old Testament, the concept of holiness and uncleanness was not in regards to salvation. That's not what those terms were used for. But what he's just simply getting at is this relationship is acceptable. This relationship is not unclean. It is not defiled. There is not a problem with it. It is not impure. And that's why you are supposed to stay in the marriage. There's nothing unholy about it. It's not unclean. He even uses the kids and says, obviously the marriage cannot be unclean or defiled or impure. Otherwise, then so would your kids. And we all recognize that's not the case as he implies with that declaration. So he just basically communicates it to him and just says, don't divorce. Even if you're married to an unbeliever, that does not make the marriage wrong. It doesn't make it sinful. It doesn't make it uh, defiled or impure. Stay in that marriage. And so notice how that verse then is an explanation to verses 12 and 13. Christian spouse, don't divorce your unbelieving spouse. The relationship's not unclean. It's not defiled. It's holy before God. It is acceptable before Him. And so do not divorce for this is the marriage law. But verse 15 gives, what if they do divorce? And that's what we've seen Paul do prior in this text, where he told the married back in verse 10, don't divorce, but then gives a teaching then, if they do divorce, here's what's supposed to happen. 
And the same thing happens here now in verse 15. If the unbelieving partner separates, there is a divorce that does occur. So in contrast to verses 12 and 13, here we have a Christian married to an unbeliever and we're told the unbeliever is willing to stay in the marriage. The Christian's not supposed to divorce that spouse. But now the shoe's kind of on the other foot here in verse 15. Notice it is the unbelieving spouse that is divorcing. Please underline that. It is not the Christian divorcing the unbeliever. The unbeliever is not going to remain in this marriage. And so the unbeliever now is separating. And so here are his directions in verse 15. He says there, but if the unbelieving unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. For God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? He begins and says, all right, if the unbelieving spouse is going to separate, let it be so. And the declaration there, I think, is fairly straightforward because as in their society, so it is in ours, is if somebody is going to divorce, there's not anything you can do to stop that. If your spouse says, I'm going to divorce you, there's nowhere you're going to go to be able to make that not happen. It's going to happen. And so you say, if they're not content for you to live with you because you are a Christian, they're not going to go along with that. Let it be so. And he gives now the reason why when he says, in such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. Now, this is probably the whole battleground line right here that we're going to have to spend a lot of time looking at. So I hope you had a good night's sleep. And you got your orange juice and you're good to go because we're going to have to do a little bit of work here in in this declaration. Let it be so because in such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. This is some really important things to look at. Number one, this word that he uses that the ESV translates as enslaved is a Greek word that is never, and I underline it even in the PowerPoint, never, never, never used to speak of the marriage bond in the New Testament. Never. The reason why is because of what the word means. It means to be enslaved. It means, as the New American Standard and the New King James say, bondage. Now, the scriptures don't ever speak of marriage as slavery. We sometimes probably do, joking around, but the scriptures don't. It's not bondage. It's not slavery. To take that term and say, well, it's talking about the marriage one. God never calls marriage the ball and chain and slavery. It's not slavery. It's not bondage. And so it is foolish to take that line and go, well, he's talking about the marriage bond. Really? The Apostle Paul in chapter 7 has gone to great lengths to speak of the blessing of marriage. How good it is. And would not come along and say, well, you're not enslaved to that person anymore. Aren't you lucky? It's not the idea at all. It's not a reference to that. Some, in trying to understand uh, what this refers to, have then used this to speak of, 
Well, maybe it's saying that you're not enslaved to marital obligations anymore. This is probably the most common thing that I've heard. And so what it's saying then is uh, if they're going to depart, let's say the, the, the unbelieving husband is leaving them, the Christian wife is not obligated to continue her marital obligations. I just submit to you that that just doesn't make sense. Because that's not even possible to do. Even in our society, that's not even possible to do as it was in their society. If the person divorces and goes and lives somewhere else, I don't believe any Christian would wake up and go, now, you know, I need to get there first thing in the morning and still fulfill all of my marital obligations from start to finish and chase them all over the countryside still trying to be a wife. Uh, that's not the idea. That's not the picture. I don't think anybody would have had that concern for this to be the answer to that. So we have to then ask the question, well, what is this referring to as we think about the brother or sister is not enslaved in such cases? And I'm going to keep using the ESV there. You probably, if you're not using the ESV, New American Standard or New King James, you have the word that says that the brother or sister is not bound. That's fine. But please understand that that's not talking about the marriage bond. It's probably useful to write a little note out there and go, that's not the same word that's ever used by the Apostle Paul when he talks about the marriage bond, like in Romans 7, different word. Or later on here, different words. God, enslavement is the word here. So the question to then frame what we need to answer. What is Paul saying? That the Christian is not enslaved to, such that if the unbeliever leaves, the Christian is to let him or her leave. That's really what verse 15 is saying. And that's what we have to begin to answer. What could the Apostle Paul be saying to the Christian to say to the Christian, that person is not enslaved, because if the unbeliever leaves, that Christian then is to just go ahead and let them leave. I think our context is important. Our context has been, in verses 12 and 13, we have an unbelieving spouse who's willing to remain in the marriage. Verse 15 is giving us a scenario where that unbelieving spouse is not. That's really important to keep tied together. We have a spouse here that is an unbeliever that will not stay in the marriage because you are a Christian. That's our set here. Okay, so let's talk about what that would mean. Now, here's here's where I usually never go with you, and I try never to go there with you, but sometimes you have to go there with you. A little bit of Greek that you can go home and impress all your friends later today that you can know, know a little bit of Greek. One of the things that's really interesting about this word enslaved, this, this Greek word here, is that it's in the perfect tense. We don't often talk in the perfect tense. We're kind of very much a past, present, or future kind of group of people. It's either already happened, or it is happening, or it happens in the future. We have perfect tense words, but we've kind of are past, present, future kind of people. To understand what that means, for the Greek to be in the perfect tense, what that refers to then is the statement like this. The action was done in the past, but it continues to have impact and results in the present. That's the idea of a perfect tense. Something that happened in the past, but continues to be affecting today. It continues to have an impact that's going on today. So, 
Consider then what that would mean in what this is saying if we were to apply that to what verse 15 is saying. He is telling them that if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. For in such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. And to use the perfect tense, then we would say the brother or sister is not enslaved because they've never been enslaved. They were not enslaved in the past and continue not to be enslaved even right now. That's what the perfect tense would do. You weren't enslaved before and you're still not enslaved now. Please recognize this in and of itself proves to us this is not talking about the marriage bond. The Apostle Paul could not be coming along and say, now if your unbelieving spouse departs, let it be so, because you were never married and you're still not married. Uh, nope, that won't work. That's not going to fit what he's talking about here. Consider then what makes sense of just the text and the context of what we've talked about. What is the conflict? What is the problem? The problem is you have an unbeliever who does not want to stay in the marriage because you're a Christian now. You've come to Christ and you now are a believer and they don't want to stay in the marriage because of that. And notice how that fits very well with the tensing of what's happening here is, well, you're not enslaved to that circumstance. You're not enslaved to forfeit your faith to be able to maintain the marriage. Consider that's always been the case in terms of the Christian. We understand that all of the time with everything else that we talk about. We will talk about the Christian is obligated to always obey the laws of the land, correct? And then we always say this, unless it goes against the law of God. In those circumstances, to use what Paul would say here, we're not under that bondage or enslavement, are we? We've never been under that enslavement, have we? Never, ever, ever. That's the idea of what the Apostle Paul is doing here. And he tells them, you're not enslaved. You've never been enslaved to keep the marriage because they're saying, uh, if you don't give up your faith, this marriage is over. And that's what verse 15 says. If the unbelieving spouse departs, let it be so. Why? Because you've never been under a condition that you're going to give up your faith in Christ to be able to keep the marriage, let them go. That's the condition that he's using. That's the whole circumstance that he's been talking about in this whole paragraph. And notice how that fits beautifully with verses 15 and 16, where now he comes back to the point. But God has called you to peace. This goes back to the point that he was making. Verses 12 and 13. Don't divorce your unbelieving spouse. Remain in that marriage. And then he just kind of gives this aside. But I understand that there are unbelievers who are not going to stay with you. If that's the case, let them depart. You're not going to forfeit your faith. You're not going to give up on God to keep the marriage. But back to the original point. You don't divorce them. It don't cause unnecessary strife over this and say, well, I'm going to divorce you because you're not a Christian. Don't do that. That's what verses 12 and 13 have been laying out. And notice how verse 16 fits with that. You don't know if you're going to save them or not. 
Why would you divorce your unbelieving spouse, O Christian? For how do you know that over time your influence and your teaching may very well save them? So I hope you see how verses 15, at the end of verse 15, in the middle of six, beginning of 16, kick back to the idea of don't divorce. That's what you've been called to peace about, is don't divorce them. If they divorce you, you can't do anything about that. You're going to be faithful to God no matter what. But you as a Christian, you are not supposed to divorce them. Think about how Peter basically said the same thing in talking about having peace with marriage. And he told those wives who had the unbelieving husbands to win them without a word. Same idea. Is don't, he doesn't say in verse 1, now you know you have a spouse who doesn't believe. Put them away. Divorce them. They, they don't believe in God. Send them away. No. Win them over without a word. And Paul is doing the same thing here. How do you know if you're not going to be able to save them? Which then I want us to take a step back for a moment and recognize there is nothing here that then authorizes any kind of remarriage, is there? No statement to it. No authority for it. In fact, he hasn't been talking about the marriage bond at all. Typically, how this text is understood is to say, so if your unbelieving spouse leaves, you have a right to remarry because you're not under the marriage bond anymore. And that is really an inappropriate way to understand that. Because number one, he's not talking about the marriage bond here, is he? He's talking about an enslavement. And the most natural understanding of enslavement would be in regards to our Christian faith and maintaining the marriage. Second, not only is he not talking about the marriage bond, but nowhere does he give the right to remarriage. You say, well, why does he have to say that explicitly? Because he does everywhere else. It was very interesting to get to... Chapter 39, I mean chapter 39, verse 39 of chapter 7, he's going to offer them the authorization there for remarriage if your spouse dies. If your spouse dies, you can remarry. Remember verse 8 did the same thing. To the married and the... Or actually, to the unmarried and the widows, verse 8. To the unmarried and the widows. Here's this authorization being given for remarriage. God has to specify the right to be able to do that. Now, typically what happens right here, because if your Bible's like mine, it's got a subheader, a header here and a, a new paragraph and all that kind of stuff. And so everybody stops and then we come back next week and we pick up in verse 17 and start a whole new paragraph and apply all of this to all married people. But I want you to look very carefully at this. Is this a new thought? Is this a new idea that's beginning in verse 17? And I want you to see why it's not. Paul is very clear in this text when he begins to speak to a new audience or a new scenario. Look at verse 8. To the unmarried and the widows. Look at verse 10. To the married. Verse 12. To the rest. Verse 25. Now concerning the betrothed. And then you'll get down to the very end and he'll even bring in widows and regarding that situation as well. Notice in verse 17, was there a now concerning or to the fill in the group? Verse 17 does not start a new idea. Verse 17 does not start a new thought. Verse 17 is not now, let me talk to all the married again. No, he already did that back in verse 10. He's still commanding those who are unbelievers. 
and believers in this marital situation. The believer who is married to the unbeliever. And notice how simple it flows what he is illustrating. In verses 18 through 20... He gives his first illustration regarding circumcision. And he says, now, when you came to Christ, did it matter if you were circumcised or you were uncircumcised? No. He says, if you were circumcised, don't try to reverse that. If you were uncircumcised, don't be circumcised because it doesn't matter to God. And notice the parallel. And when you came to Christ, it didn't matter if you were married to a believer or an unbeliever. Don't try to undo that. Don't try to reverse that. Don't try to change that. Just as much as you came to Christ, you were circumcised or uncircumcised, God goes, doesn't matter. You just remain with that condition that you have is fine. And the same point is being made here. You've come to Christ, and it doesn't matter that your spouse isn't a believer. That's okay. That situation's not unholy, as he's talked about. It's not unclean. You remain in that condition. Notice verses 21 to 24. He uses a second illustration to make the same point regarding slavery. He says, when you came to Christ, does it matter if you were a slave? Or does it matter if you're free? No. And so, does the free person need to become a slave? Of course not. Does the slave need to become free? No, no, he doesn't. Although, I love the parenthetical, of course, if you're able to, go right ahead. You know, if you can be free, yes, go ahead and do that as he gives that there. But that's not his point. His point is, so does it matter if you are free or you're a slave and you came to Christ? Absolutely not. And in the same way, it doesn't matter if you were married to an unbeliever or a believer. You're not supposed to change that condition. That's all this text is doing. Please understand, this I think is really, 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 really important. This is not referring to all marital situations. If I had a daughter, for every time, verses 17 and 24 were used for any kind of marital situation that came up, because they'll run here and they'll say, well, it says to remain in the condition you were called. Right? So I was married 14,000 times before I came to Christ, and it's all okay because, you know, it says remain in the condition I was called. Whoa. We're not talking about that. That's not in Paul's vision at all in this paragraph. This remain in the condition that you were called is talking up to the Christian who's married to the unbeliever. Don't divorce them. Don't send, send them away. You stay in that marriage. That paragraph is still to the rest. To the rest. These people who are married to unbelievers. We cannot go dive bombing into a paragraph, ignoring all context or connectors, and start applying this to marital situations that the Apostle Paul was not talking about. That's the same as dive bombing into, into like verses 25 to 40 that we'll talk about, Lord willing, next week and say, well, the Apostle Paul says you're better off not getting married and you better be free to, and you go ahead and be free if you're, if you're uh, tied to somebody. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Better reread that again more carefully about context and what he's talking about, what the conditions were before you just go flying into that verse that says, hey, uh, if you seek to be freed, you shouldn't, but it's okay if you do. That one gets referred out of context too. Wait, 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 wait. What's he been talking about? The same thing has to happen here. Please remember, there is absolutely no scripture that we can go to that authorizes 
for us to remain in a sinful marriage relationship. And this is certainly not it. This is not the text of, well, you know, just remain in the condition that you are called. I would just ask this question, if that is the way you prefer to understand verses 17 to 24. How could we ever say that a marriage relationship that is condemned and considered sinful by God before you came to Christ is now suddenly acceptable after you came to Christ? That doesn't make sense. How does a condition that is sinful now suddenly become okay because now you are a Christian? And I've had people say, well, aren't you forgiven of all sins? Yes, you are. You are absolutely forgiven of all the sins that you've ever committed. That's not the point. The point is, do you now get to continue in sin that grace will supposedly abound? No. Just because you come to Christ doesn't mean you get to continue living how you were previously living. Is that not one of the main messages of nearly every book the Apostle Paul wrote? It's a new self. It's a new life. It's a new way. You don't keep doing what you did in the past. If it was sinful before you came to Christ, it's still sinful now and you need to stop doing that. That's what like Ephesians is talking about. That's what even Galatians was talking about. We see that in Colossians. This message over and over again. We see it in the book of Romans. That old way is put to death. You don't follow that system anymore. You don't live like that anymore. And so it's important to see that this is not talking about all these other marital situations. In fact, if you'll notice the flow of the argument then, what the Apostle Paul has done is in verses 12 and 13, he just set this forward. Christians, remain married to unbelievers. And then he just lists all the reasons why. In verse 14, his his explanation. The marriage is not defiled. The marriage is holy. It's not unclean. It's not sinful. It's not wrong. It's fine. Stay in the marriage. Verse 15, you were called to peace. Don't blow up the marriage when the person is willing to stay in the marriage. Don't blow up that marriage if the unbeliever will stay with you. Don't divorce. You were called to peace. You're not supposed to destroy that marriage. Verse 16, you don't know if you'll save your spouse. So don't divorce your unbelieving spouse. Stay in the marriage. And then he used two illustrations in verses 17 through 24 to prove that point. That it does has no bearing on your salvation if you are married to an unbeliever or a believer just as much as being circumcised or uncircumcised or being slave or free does not matter regarding your salvation. So it is if you are married to an unbeliever. Do you see the flow? Not like this. Yep, makes sense. That's that's the argument sense of what he's doing in this whole paragraph. That's where he's gone with all of this is to try to show the Christian why you must stay in the marriage. And all that he's done in verse 15 is give the outlier just like he did back in verse 10 to the married. He said in verse 10, don't divorce. But if divorce happens, remain unmarried or be reconciled. But that's not the thrust. The thrust is don't divorce. Same thing here in verses 12 to 24. Christian, you're married to an unbeliever. Don't divorce. But understand, if they do divorce because of your faith, because you're a Christian, okay. Then that's the consequence of being a follower of Jesus Christ. If they're not going to stay in that marriage, then they're not going to stay in that marriage. 
But as we've noted, there's no declaration, teaching, or implication whatsoever that that means now you have a right to be married again. Now, I want to just draw three applications from this. Number one, it is so, so important for us to be careful students of the scriptures. You will hear me from time to time standing up here talk about ignoring numbers in your Bible. And I don't say ignore these verse numbers and chapter numbers to be ornery towards the people who came up with these numbers. (laughs) But for you to work past those numbers, because often those things easily cause us to start new ideas and new thoughts and new paragraphs where they didn't happen. That's especially true, I think, in verses 15 and 16. I wish that 16 was back at the end of verse 15, right in front of the word, or right after the word, enslaved. God has called you to peace. Notice the next word is for. This is an explanation. Because God's called you to peace because you don't know if you'll save your wife or save your husband. Sometimes the numbers just get in the way of the flow of thought or the flow of the argument. And so my first encouragement to you is, is to be a very careful student of the Bible. I, I, oh man, I have heard, I have heard this paragraph absolutely tortured, just tortured by preachers. It pains me. It makes me cry. It makes me mad. It makes all kinds of emotions out of me just to hear the torturing of this text when it's really not that complicated if you just kind of flow through the reading and don't stop at arbitrary places. Just read through it. And we know that context is important. Flow is important. So please be a careful student of the scriptures. Please carefully read when you study. Number two, this upholds the very thing that God has given us from the very beginning. Here is a situation that Paul describes that these Corinthian Christians are dealing with. And yet the law still stays the same. The marriage law of one marriage for life That's the rule. There are very few exceptions to that. And I think it's important to see that when here is this other question. What if I'm married to an unbeliever? Paul's immediate answer is, so? You stay married there too? There's not all of these reasons for divorce. And there's not all of these acceptable reasons for remarriage. The general rule that God gave is you get one marriage and that's it. So be careful who you choose because you're going to stay in that marriage. So it's a very important teaching that we have here. Number three that I want to talk about just for a couple minutes and then we'll be done is notice that the thrust of this has been about how our faith is not to be compromised for the sake of marriage. That's what's going on here. And this appears to be what the question is centering around is our marriage has a problem because the unbeliever is unwilling to stay in the marriage. What are we supposed to do? We've got a problem. Is it okay to remain in the marriage? And Paul says, yes. Well, what if they leave? What are we, what am I supposed to do then? And it's important for us to just remember this, that our faith, in Christ is supreme above anything else. That is supposed to be everything. 
And we often will talk about it very simply in terms of the laws of the land, which is right. But that's true in marriage, too. That it is important for us to recognize that we are not enslaved to our spouse's wishes if it's to cause us to forfeit our faith or practice in Christ. And I fear that that's not only an easy temptation to fall into, that I do believe some people think that that's the right thing to do. Because, hey, it's a marriage and I'm supposed to maintain the marriage. And yes, you are supposed to maintain the marriage. But not at the forfeiting of what you're supposed to be doing in the kingdom of God. That trumps all relationships and that trumps all circumstances and that trumps all scenarios. And I think it's important that we understand, too, this is your great opportunity as verse 16 gets at. How do you not know that you might save your spouse? Show your faith and do what you are to do in service to God, even if your spouse is resistant to it, because you don't know if that might be the way you save them. If you forfeit your faith, if you sacrifice your faith, if you cut corners on your faith and do not show that God is supreme in your life above all else, then why would you ever suppose that you would ever be able to win your spouse to the faith? All that you've shown them is God is a God of convenience that can be worshipped and served whenever it's good for you. We have to show, even in the marriage, God is supreme. God is everything. That God is our life. And if our spouse doesn't like it, okay, but I'm still going to serve the Lord. I'm still going to worship. I'm still going to Bible classes. I'm still going to serve. I'm still going to do what's right. I'm not going to forfeit any of my faith. Because that stands supreme. And so I encourage you today, serve the Lord faithfully. Even if it causes that you have difficulty and problems and backlash and issues, serve the Lord faithfully. That is what verse 15 was getting at here when he wrote to them. You understand that that is your primary obligation. And just like any relationship, any scenario, any situation that we're in, we reject anything That causes us to not obey what God has called us to do. And it's really, really hard to do that in marriage, isn't it? It is really hard when you do not have a spouse that supports you, that encourages your faith, but antagonizes or weighs you down or drags you away or even just neutral is hard too. When you don't have someone who is faithfully working with you to serve the Lord with all of your heart. And if you're in that situation, I'm encouraging you to see this text and see it as hope and encouragement to you to serve the Lord with all of your might. And by doing so, who knows, you may save your spouse's soul in the process by showing God to be everything in your life. Will you do that? It's hard, but it's so important. So important. You pull your songbooks out. We'll sing the invitation song. 
We invite you to see the power of Jesus Christ. We encourage you to see what God has done and why God is supreme over all things and that everything that we have in our relationships is a blessing of God. But understand that God is everything, that he is our life and he is deserving of our worship and our service and our sacrifice. It is worth what we must forfeit and it is worth sometimes the difficulty of dealing with the, the, even the laws that God has given regarding marriage. But it is worth obedience to the things that God has said regarding marriage and divorce because being with God in eternity and having a relationship with Him is far, far more valuable than the short time that we have on this earth. It is far more valuable to make the sacrifices necessary here in this life and serve the Lord faithfully than it is to forfeit your faith and make peace on this earth and lose your soul. Will you come to Jesus today and see Him as supreme? Will you turn away from your sins and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins and begin to walk with Jesus faithfully? Will you do that now while we stand and while we sing?